This is Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 282, and this is Wednesday, May 10th. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and attempt the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews, part 6, and that we have to go back to 268, 270, 274, 276, and 278 get the other parts. This is part six. And we are approaching a decisive New Testament saying here in Hebrews 9.26. I've been saying it throughout our series. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself is Paul's decisive statement in 2 Corinthians 5.19. One that matches it in my view is that now once at the termini of the ages, Christ has appeared to put away sin by this sacrifice or the offering of himself. We're approaching that wonderful, decisive New Testament saying. So Father, we ask now that you will grant us grace to communicate your word of grace. And we ask this in the name of your son who was full of grace and truth and is still. Hebrews 9, my translation so far, it's kind of a working translation until we get to a final one. He says, now indeed the first, that means the first covenant in the context. We ought to know that by now with all the time we've spent on the new covenant passage, Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. Now indeed the first covenant had associated with it regulations for service and a this worldly sanctuary. And we noted that, that this worldly also has the indication of cosmic or universal, a sanctuary representing the universe. And I, I said, and I stand by it, that is, this is a rhetorical backhanded way of the writer indicating that Jesus Christ has universally saving significance and the universal impact in his crucifixion and death. Verse 2, a tent was furnished, it says. The first, and this is confusing to some people, it says the first as if there's two tents, but this is really the first room or compartment of the single tent, the one tent. A tent was furnished, the first room, I would translate it, or compartment might even be better. Let's do it that way. A tent was furnished, the first compartment, that is in the order of approach to the Holy of Holies, of which was called the holies, sometimes translated the holy place, but it's literally the plural, the holies, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Interestingly, here we have the lampstand referring to Jesus as the light of the world and the loaves being him being the life of the world and therefore little hints at universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. But that's really my take on it. I'm gonna tell you right now that it is not my intention nor was it the author's intention to really fan out the meaning of all these pieces of furniture or furnishings. He had a different purpose in mind. So we can't hang in there too long. We can't stay on these things too long. He then says in verse three, Behold, or behind, the second curtain was a section called 
the Holy of Holies. Having the golden altar and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, and above, that means above the ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation. About which things, listen to what he says here, about which things it is not necessary right now to speak of in detail. Verse 6, thus these things being prepared into the first room or compartment of the tent, the priests entered all the time. Diapantos here means repeatedly, continually, they were always doing it. It was a daily occurrence. Priests were always performing their service. In fact, that's what it says. Into the first compartment or the first room of the tent, the priests entered all the time, repeatedly to perform their service. That's the service of priests, a priestly ministry. You can compare that with Jesus' ministry in the Holy of Holies in heaven in Hebrews 8, 1 to 2. But into the second, not the second tent here, but the second compartment of the one tent, into the second compartment once a year, not repeatedly, not all the time, not every day, but only once a year, only one person, the archpriest, goes. So we have it this way, but into the second compartment, once a year, only the archpriest goes. Hebrew, that's the Kohen HaGadol. Kohen HaGadol. The archpriest. Leviticus 16, 17 indicates that. We're now dealing with the typology of the Day of Atonement. But this writer isn't going to, he's not a typologist. He doesn't, in other words, major on typology here. He's not intending to do that. He's actually forming all this up into a warning of what is about to occur in AD 70, the destruction of the temple in which is housed what is essentially used to be the tent in the desert wanderings is now the temple in Jerusalem. And when something is old, it is about ready to vanish altogether. That's why I call this the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews. It's not everything about Hebrews, but it is a big trajectory or arc of coherence in Hebrews. As tempting as it is, and it's very tempting, to fan this section out and speak of the significance of each of the furnishings of the humanly constructed tent, I'm not going to succumb. I already have a little bit. Because I'd rather go along with the PT, the preacher who preached Hebrews, who precisely does not do this. He's just noting, okay, the old covenant had associated with it an old tent, a tent, a tabernacle, and with it, the furnishings of the tabernacle and priests serving there continually. 
And once a year, and only once a year, only the archpriest goes into the second compartment of the tent called the Holy of Holies, to the place of expiation. And in verse 8, it says, never without blood, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. As tempting as it is, I'll say again, to speak out and about the significance of each of the furnishings of this humanly constructed tent, I'm not going to succumb, at least not yet, because I'd rather go along with the PT who precisely does not do this. During the time when he wrote, and after the time he wrote, and before the time he wrote, a lot of literature and a lot of ink was spilled on people talking about the, the typology of all the furnishings. And there are books written today by the thousands on the typology of the furnishings and what they represent. And that there is a vital service performed by those that are doing that. And it's an important thing and it would, it would constitute a very profitable study, no doubt. But that's not what this writer wants to do. As evidently many others had done both before and during his time. He's not going to do that. I'm not doing that, he says. Now we do know that these all testify of me, as Jesus said about the scriptures in John 5:39 to 40, in Luke 24, 44, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. These all testify of me, not only the prophets, but the law and all the types in the law. They did all testify of him. So there's something said about Christ in the almond rod that budded. There's something said about Christ. Obviously, in the broken tablets of the law, there's something said about Christ in all these things, but only as shadows. He is the substance, the reality, the divine human person, the once and for all and forever efficacious sacrifice. And that's where the PT is trying to pull their attention toward. Hebrews 9, 8, look at this. By this, the Holy Spirit is making clear that not yet disclosed is the road to the Holy of Holies, while the first tent has standing. The word standing here is stasin in the Greek, S-T-A-S-I-N. Stasin in Hebrews 9.8 means standing, not only in the literal sense, but also in the sense of something having a standing, as in the sentence, she had good standing in her town, or he had standing in his community. It means to have status or even eminence. The point here is as long as the earthly tent has status, the way into the Holy of Holies was not disclosed. As long as the earthly tent had status, the way into the Holy of Holies was not disclosed. Stasin in Hebrews 9.9, 9, as it goes on, means existence as well as continuance. The Holy Spirit is making clear that as long as this tent now the temple was in existence. The way into the true holy of holies is hidden. For this reason, the non-existence of the temple had to be brought about. 
the non-existence of the stone temple had to be brought about. What once had eminence was now just an eminence front. Yes, the Who sang that song. It's an eminence front. It's a put on. What once had had eminence, even in the eyes of God, was now just an eminence front. What once had eminence was now a mere facade. That's precisely why Jesus was not as impressed as his disciples when they tried to point out to him the magnificence of the buildings of the temple. He said to them, don't you really see these things? Don't you really see them? I'm telling you, not one stone here will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. That begins the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 1-2. Jesus isn't as impressed as others. There may be an impressive piece of art that depicts Jesus Christ. Recently, Newsmax magazine had a pictorial of what Jesus' face must have looked like if the Shroud of Turin was authentic, and they think that it was, if it was authentic. And so they had someone construct what Jesus would look like. So everybody goes out and buys Newsmax magazine. It is intriguing. But any depiction of Jesus' face shouldn't excite us too much because it's only a snapshot and a conception. It's dangerous to portray Jesus Christ in that way. Now, some people are excited about dramas like The Chosen, where Jonathan Rumi portrays Jesus, or The Passion of the Christ, a very well-done movie in which Jim Caviezel portrays Christ. When I was a kid, I was amazed and overcome by The King of Kings, which wasn't such a hot-done movie. It was pretty good. And Jeffrey Hunter was Jesus Christ. And there were times when, Robert, well, Robert Powell played him in Jesus of Nazareth. And all of these are powerful, what we could call passion plays. But nobody can play Jesus, you see. It'd be dangerous if we were to consider that he was just like that person and that he looked just like this person or that person because that would really hinder the insight we're having. The Holy Spirit gives an insight into Jesus Christ that is far greater than an artistic or a pictorial presentation or a dramatic per presentation of him. That's why I like certain dramatic presentations, but I'm not as impressed with them because what impresses me is the spiritual sight that the Holy Spirit gives me into Jesus Christ, which is nothing like just a single snapshot of an artistic rendition or a dramatic presentation or an actor that may or may not be portraying him. But nobody can play him. Nobody can play him. He lives in us. He manifests his life in us. That's one thing. But already people have confused actors for the person of Jesus Christ, when every actor that ever portrayed him in any kind of movie, however well done, is a sinner and a sinful man. And Jesus Christ can't be portrayed to physical eyes in a movie theater. And that's why I even would go so far as to say not to have depictions of him 
in a church. You go to a church and you see Jesus Christ crucified. It's a wonderful depiction of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ, but it gets to be the only conception that someone has of him, for they see it every, every week, every, every time. I remember seeing a campus crusade painting of Jesus, and Jesus looked like a, a California surfer. Because to, to people think, well, if he was going to look like I would be considering him an ideal, he would look that way. There are people that portray him as an African-American. There are people that portray him as a Scandinavian. There's people that portray him depending upon their racial preference and sometimes even their gender preference. They portray him sometimes as effeminate. They portray him sometimes as masculine. And perhaps people in the physical culture want to portray him as somebody on the front of muscle and fitness. It doesn't matter. And I'm, I'm not as impressed as others might be, so forgive me, but I'm not as impressed by portrayals of him in drama or in art. And there's even more of a value in iconic art because at least in iconic art, there's no attempt to portray what you think he might have looked like. It rather depicts something of the father and of the son that is in the iconographic art of the Eastern Europe and other places. Now, I'm, I'm saying all that to say that Jesus wasn't impressed by the stones, the magnificent buildings of the temple complex of his time, and it was very impressive. It was glorious. If you see the, from the standpoint of home base and in PNC Park at a certain time in the, in the day, the light comes from where the batter is on the city and it's all golden. It's literally gold. The whole, all the buildings are gold when the sun hits the city just at the right time from PNC Park where the batter is batting at a certain time of day. And it's, it's stunning, but it's, it's just passing. It's all of a sudden, it's no longer gold because the sun moved just a little bit and you see those buildings. The closer you get to the buildings, the closer you get to the sidewalks around the buildings and see the trash in the buildings and see the things that are really downtown, you aren't as impressed. Jesus saw those magnificent temple buildings as something that were destined to be thrown down. What is highly esteemed in the eyes of men is often an abomination to God, as Luke 16:15 says. The temple had become an idol. The temple had become an adversary of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had become its adversary. The table of showbread had become a stumbling block. The table was a snare, as Romans 9.11 says. Their table became a snare. The temple became an obscurer of God not a revealer of God. And so, Jesus said this, don't you really see these things? I see you're impressed, but don't you really see them? I'm telling you, he said, not one stone here will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. His disciples saw it as men generally see things and hold them in esteem, especially great architectural feats of human being. In fact, 
People are impressed with what people do. Humans are impressed with what humans do. That's why they're called humanists. Recently, I heard Elon Musk say that he was accused of being a speciest. He, he laughed and he said, yep, busted. And you know what a speciest is? Someone who respects the human species. Because there are actually people who are vying for control that think there's too many of us human species on the planet and that we should be eradicated either slowly or rapidly. They are not speciousists. They think that the human beings, just like the Nazi used to think of certain human beings called Jews, as vermin, as not human. Well, there are people today that are not even speciousists. They don't consider the human race itself to be of value. And so it was kind of funny to hear Elon Musk say to the guy, yep, I'm a speciousist, busted. He loves the human race. He values the human race. And so human, but on the other side, human beings sometimes highly esteem the things that human beings do above God. They're called humanists. And sometimes humanists don't really love humanity. And they don't, be, and it's impossible for a humanist who's an atheist to love humanity. Because only, the only way to love humanity is if the love of God is poured out in your heart. So his disciples saw the temple complex and the buildings there just like visitors from all over the world would see it and just like men hold it in esteem. Jesus now saw the temple so impressive to men, including his disciples, as an abomination. What was once the means to worship God had become an idol. What was intended to be a means of disclosure had become a means of concealment of the truth, of the true temple. This throwing down that Jesus predicted was in fact brought about by August, in August of AD 70. It isn't hard to imagine that Hebrews was written and delivered to the Christian, Christians living on the eve of the destruction of the temple, which is analogous to the striking of an earthly tent. It was high time to make a complete break with the tent and with all the institutions and practices associated with it. If one chose rather to stick with this abrogated system, and if one were even to be in the environs of the temple after the abomination of desolation, speaking of abominations, made its appearance, the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem in Matthew 24, 15, one would have nothing to look forward to if one were to identify with and be even in the environs of this temple complex with a view to offering sacrifices that no longer could take away sin, to continue there if they were within its environments, environs at the time of the abomination of desolation, then they better haul on out of there because Otherwise, one would have nothing to look forward to but the fiery judgment which was about to devour God's adversaries, Hebrews 10.27, in old Jerusalem. Conti to continue under this old and now abrogated tradition was to continue to sin. 
for the readers of Hebrews, it would have been a particularly egregious sin, for it would have been to continue to sin willfully, in Hebrews 10.26, after their reception of the knowledge of the truth. They received the truth of the finished work of Christ and still willfully went into Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. Well, what if they were there when the abomination of desolation showed up and the siege began? They would have nothing to look forward to but the fiery indignation that was about ready to, to devour the adversaries. That's what Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 has to do with. It's the AD 70 trajectory. It's not a warning of hell. Hebrews 9, 9, this is a parable, he says, a symbol of this present time when both gifts and sacrifices keep being presented. Do you think they're still doing it? Yes, they're still performing. That's why I think it's this verse and many others is why I believe that we're, the writer wrote on the verge of the destruction of Jerusalem, not after it. Because look what he says. This is a parable. A symbol of this present time when both gifts and sacrifices keep being presented which cannot make complete the worshippers conscience in other words it can't decisively purge the conscience of the worshiper we get into that in Hebrews 9 14 and Hebrews 10 19 to 22 later on the conscience is representative of the whole being of the, the entire human being because the conscience is on the top level of the human consciousness that's where the conscience is so when the conscience is not completed the worshiper isn't completed they're not completely worshiping the human being isn't really completely mature so it seems that by this Hebrews 9 9 that the practices connected with the old or the first covenant and the services performed by the priesthood of Aaron were still ongoing as they were when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.13. Paul wrote to the Corinthians of, quote, those who work in the temple in the present tense. When he wrote that, they were still serving in the temple in Jerusalem. Similarly, in Hebrews 13.10, the preacher who preached Hebrews spoke in the present tense of, quote, those who officiate in the tent, which is, of course, the temple, the tent, of the wilderness wanderings was transferred now to the temple in Jerusalem, Hebrews 13.10. In fact, in that very verse, the PT contrasted the priesthood, which his readers had, with that of the priests who were continuing in the abrogated order. He says in Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar. Who's we? We the believers. We believers in Jesus Christ. We who have been awakened to Jesus Christ and granted the gift of faith. We have an altar, why? Because we are priests. We're a different kind of priests. We're the priests under a great archpriest who is a great archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have an altar from which those who serve, guess what, present tense, those who keep serving the man-made earthly tent have no right to eat from. We have an altar from which those who serve the earthly man-made tent have no right to eat from. The point is that to those who are not yet awakened to the reality of Jesus as the great archpriest who has entered once and for all into the heavenly holy of holies, that is, to those who still view the first tent as having standing with God, 
to those the highway into the Holy of Holies is left undisclosed. That in fact the first tent no longer has standing in God's eyes is to be dramatically revealed by the total demolition of the temple in A.D. 70. You're impressed with these buildings? Not a stone will be left upon a stone of these buildings you're pointing out. The way has indeed been made clear to the author of this epistle, that way into the Holy of Holies. That way is a blood-stained highway of the king. It's a highway paved, in fact, by the blood of Jesus. A highway that passes through the curtain that is his flesh. So in the very beginning of the large hortatory section or exhortation section of Hebrews 10, 19 to 39, really the final exhortation is 1019 all the way to 1321 of Hebrews. But in the very beginning of it in 1019, the Holy Spirit makes this highway clearly visible to us. He makes it clear. Here it is. Therefore, brothers and sisters, having confidence that we have the right of entry into the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Jesus on the newly paved and living highway right through the curtain, that is his flesh. And having a great archpriest over the household of God, let's approach with a heart made authentic with full assurance, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. That's not water baptism, incidentally. We'll hit that down the road. Let's hold on tight, he says, to the acknowledgement of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What's the acknowledgement of our hope? Our hope is our expectation of a radical change of condition in the resurrection of all of humanity, in the restoration of all things, in the anakephaliosis, in the apocatastasis, in the deorthosis, which is found in Hebrews 9.11. Please notice the occurrences of the word blood and flesh in Hebrews 10.19 to 23. In that order, blood and flesh. Relating to Jesus, just as blood and flesh, in that order, were associated with him in Hebrews 2.14, where it speaks of his destruction of the devil and liberation of the entire human race from slavery to the fear of death. It says that he became a partaker of blood and flesh, precisely to be the redeemer of all those who were humans made of blood and flesh. The fear of death vanishes when we understand that death itself has been vanquished for every partaker of human blood and flesh and for all flesh of whatever sort for that matter through Jesus becoming sin for in becoming sin Jesus put away sin by his self-sacrifice and in putting away sin he did away with the sting of death hornet death where is your stinger Hades where is your victory now in my view the wording of Hebrews 9 1 to 14 and of Hebrews 10 19 to 23 argues for a pre-AD 70 writing of Hebrews. Therefore, in Hebrews, there is a trajectory toward that date. Contemporary with the recipients of the written homily was the system of sacrifices and offerings in the ongoing service of priests of the Levitical order in the man-made tent, which was all associated with the antiquated and obsolete covenant 
which those still practiced and performed in the temple complex in Jerusalem was still about to vanish altogether. The gist of the pastor's message is this. Do you really want to identify with this antiquated system, with these redundant and completely ineffective rituals, when your Messiah King and eternal great archpriest has come and offered one sacrifice, efficacious and more than sufficient for all the people for all time? Do you really want to go back? Do you really want to stay with? Do you really want to continue sinning after receiving the knowledge of that truth? And once again, we have re reached the precise geographical center of the homily. Let's follow the continuity here, Hebrews 9.9. 9. This is really just a first swipe at this passage, or one of several swipes at it before we get more down to the brass tacks of interpretation and exegesis. Hebrews 9.9, 9, this is a parable for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented, which are not able to completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper, having to do only with foods and drinks and various washings, regulations involving the body, imposed until the time of the new order, the deorthosis, as it's called. This quite negative assessment of the abrogated system associated with the antiquated covenant is followed by an eminently positive presentation of the advent of the priest Messiah and his once and for all entry into the heavenly holy of holies of the tent not made with human hands after having made one efficacious offering for all of humanity and for all time. Here's the positive then. Now the Messiah, verse 11, has come as an archpriest of good things that have come, that's the alteration of the human situation, and are coming, the alteration of the condition, human condition, through the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on a polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body, the outward flesh, and it did, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God? So the way into the Holy of Holies has been revealed. It's a blood-paved highway, the highway of the king. It passes through the torn curtain, the torn flesh of Jesus Christ. See my hands, see my feet, see my riven side. Torn curtain. Through that torn curtain, into the Holy of Holies, access provided for all. Now I want to close by looking at the way into the Holy of Holies and how it was revealed in the course of the climax of the Christ event in the Gospels. In fact, in all four Gospels, but I'm going to refer to a few of these portions right now, and it'll probably be from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Consider these references. Really, here is where we have the Holy of Holies, the way revealed. It is revealed in the crucified Christ 
and by the things that he says and does. Matthew 27, starting at verse 46, it says, at about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing heard this, standing by heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had gone to their rest were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. And the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. They were terrified and said, this man really was God's son. How about Mark 15, 34? And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from the top to the bottom. You see what's happening here? The way into the Holy of Holies in heaven is being revealed through the curtain, which is to say his flesh. Note well that here, not only, posi not only positively was the way revealed into the Holy of Holies of heaven, but negatively also what was happening, what was being revealed was the beginning of the destruction of the temple already right there in AD 30. A connection here exists between AD 30 and AD 70. But the torn curtain also indicates that the way into the heavenly Holy of Holies has been made and revealed. The road paved right through the curtain, which is Jesus' flesh. Our confidence by the blood of Jesus is the reason that our hope is firm. Our confidence is in his blood. Never without blood. This high priest went in with his own blood, not the blood of others, not with the blood of lambs or rams or bullocks. When the centurion was standing opposite him saw that he breathed his last, the way he breathed his last, it says, he said this man really was God's son. That centurion saw a lot of men breathe their last, none like this man. Luke 23, 44, it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three. See the witness of the three synoptic gospels. Because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. 
How about John 19.30? When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, the telestai. Then he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He, saw, he who saw this, John the author of John, testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth. All of these four gospels are giving an indication that the way into the Holy of Holies has been revealed. It has been revealed by a blood-paved highway, the highway of the king. And its way passes through the curtain into the second compartment, the Holy of Holies, that curtain being his flesh. For it was through the body of his flesh through death that he destroyed the enmity and brought about reconciliation of the world. And so, Father, we thank you for this wonderful privilege of studying your word. And this is a rather obscure view of Hebrews 9. And yet we have other times and we pray that the Holy Spirit, as he always does, as is his ministry, will make things clearer and clearer as we look again and again into Hebrews 9. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.